welcome to Tea and Tattle. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, a freelance writer living in London. And every week on the podcast, I hold candid conversations with a range of inspiring women, including best-selling authors, cookbook writers, artists, and many more. We chat about creativity, books, well-being and everything in between and my main aim for these conversations is to inspire and uplift Tea and Tattle listeners. This week I'm joined by the writer Anne Ma to discuss Anne's best-selling book The Lost Vintage. Having grown up in America, Anne developed a love for France from a young age after a family holiday to Paris, and she now splits her time between Washington DC and Paris. Her memoir, Mastering the Art of French Eating, describes the year Anne spent travelling through France and sampling different regional dishes of the country. France still inspires Anne's writing, and I read Anne's latest novel, The Lost Vintage, before my trip to Burgundy earlier in October. It was the perfect book for the occasion, as it's set in Burgundy and tells the story of Kate, a wine expert who is studying for the Master of Wine exam. Kate travels from California to Burgundy to stay with her French relatives and brush up on her knowledge of Burgundian wines. Whilst there, Kate discovers a hidden room within the family's cellar, full of priceless bottles of wine that were hidden from the Nazis during World War II and hadn't been touched since. But Kate also uncovers some disturbing information about her family. Could one of her ancestors have collaborated with the Nazis? The Lost Vintage is a really gripping book full of beautiful descriptions of the Burgundian countryside as well as fascinating information about French food, wine and history. It's a really brilliant read. And in today's discussion, Anne tells me a bit about the inspiration behind her book and why she became so fascinated by the history of France during World War II. It's a brilliant discussion that's sure to please any Francophile and I'm delighted to say that Anne is very kindly giving away two copies of The Lost Vintage to Tea and Tattle listeners based in America as well as another two copies of her book to listeners based in the UK. To find out more about entering the giveaway, check out the show notes at teentattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 91. But now let's get started with the show. Hello, Anne. Thanks so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. Thank you so much for having Miranda. I love your show and I love your Instagram account and it's a real pleasure for me to join you. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today because I've already mentioned to you how much I love your book, The Lost Vintage, what a pleasure it was to read it just before I went to Burgundy. So yeah, I can't wait for this discussion. But just to start things off, would you tell me a little about yourself and how you first developed your love for France and for French food in particular? Yes, Um, I grew up in Southern California in the United States. And I can't imagine a place that is more distant from France culturally and just geographically. 
Um, but when I was about six years old, my family took a trip to the UK and also to France, and it was in the summer. The UK was gloomy and rainy and quite cold. And then we hopped on a plane and landed in Paris, and we landed in the middle of a brilliant heat wave. It was sunny, it was hot, there were smells, it was dazzling, the architecture was brilliant and beautiful, and everything just seemed so exotic and so elegant. Um, even though I was a, quite a young child, I, I was really, I was blown away by, by the magnificence. And that's, mm. that's where my love of France began. Later in life, um, as still as a child, I would watch t- on TV Julia Child, who's quite a well-known American chef. Um, who brought really introduced Americans to French cuisine in the 1960s with her with her show, um, and my dad and I would watch that together. And sometimes we would cook from her cookbook, and that's where my love of French cuisine began. That I nurtured until I was lucky enough to move to France in 2008. Oh wow! Well, I'm such a big fan of Julia Child as well, so I love that you are too. But what was that move to France like then for you? So my husband is a diplomat. We move every three or four years. Um, we, we've lived in Beijing. Um, we live in Washington D.C. Part I'm here part part of the year now. We lived in New York, um, and in 2008, we were lucky enough to get posted to Paris, which was just a dream come true for both of us. We're both huge Francophiles, and we had, you know, always really hoped to to live there and travel around the country and discover discover the country through its regional cuisine. Um, about three or four months after we arrived in Paris, he got an unexpected call asking him to go to Baghdad for a year to wow. work at the embassy there. Um, the good part was that I could stay in Paris uh, and I would be alone uh, in a foreign country where I had always dreamed of living. Um, but, you know, I was had taken some French, but was still just starting to really become fluent in French and um, had never really traveled by myself before. And at first I was, I was very, I was intimidated by the prospect. I, I felt, you know, nervous and there was a certain amount of anxiety with my husband in quite a dangerous war zone at the time. But I ended up turning that our dream of traveling together through France into something I did alone. Um, so during that year, I took the opportunity to visit 10 different regions of France and discover the signature dish of each region. Oh, amazing. That sounds like the best project it ever. Was, it was. And it really taught me about France. Yeah, because each area is so different, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And did you start learning to cook? As you Did you already love cooking or did that develop um, during your time in France? I already loved cooking and I already loved food. Um, and that stemmed from our move to Beijing in 2003. We moved to Beijing a month after we got married for our first diplomatic assignment together. Um, and I am ethnically Chinese, but I had grown up in the States. Uh, my father also was born in the States. So we uh, ate Chinese food in our family home, but it was the kind of Chinese food that my dad cooked for us. Um, you know, his mother's dishes. She was from Guangdong. 
when I got to China, I was shocked to discover the variety of, of regional Chinese cuisine. Um, the country is about the same size as the United States, and it is as culturally diverse. Um, I had never expected to find, um, you know, the region of Yunnan. They they make their own cheese. That was incredibly unusual to me. Um, so it was through living in China that food was the bridge that drew me into China and really made me um, eager to discover all the different regions of China. And when I moved to France, I applied that same interest uh, to learning about France and French cuisine. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, for me as well, that I find food is just a wonderful bridge into other cultures. Exactly. Like you say, when did you start writing about your love for France and food? I mean, you've written a memoir, Mastering the Art of French Eating. And from that title, I could tell you were Julia Charles, which is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> um, but what kind of inspired you to write that? What got you really started on food writing? Well, so food writing in general, I started when I moved to Beijing. Um, I had been working for a publishing house in New York City and left my job to become what they call a trailing spouse, um, a horrible term, which <laughs> which is someone who follows, basically follows their spouse around for his or her job, for his or her career. <laughs> my mom did that too. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I know. And, yeah. And I was really lost at first in Beijing. Um, and like I said, it was through the food that I became really, truly, deeply curious about, about China and and the history and the culture. Um, and that is also where I first started, had the opportunity to write about food. Um, I was a little bit lost at first. I really missed my career in book publishing. Um, had always dreamed of becoming a writer, but never had the opportunity or maybe even really never had the material. Um, but in Beijing, I discovered all of that. Oh, well, that's wonderful. And so you already had that background in writing about food. Mm -hmm. And then was it that year traveling around France that inspired exactly. you further? Exactly. So when we got to France, it seemed like a wonderful opportunity to continue writing about food, especially since I was such a Francophile and lover of French cuisine. Um, and so I did take that year to, to travel around and that formed the basis of the book. And I, I took that year alone as an opportunity to discover the country by myself. And in a way, although I, I was sad about the lost chance to, to have that experience with my husband, which would have been wonderful, it, it, made, my, it made France my own, which, which I don't think would have happened otherwise. Um, I feel incredibly comfortable in France now. And I feel like I have my own experiences there that don't, aren't, part of our, aren't part of my relationship, my marriage. Um, it's, it's, you know, it was, it, it was an inde independence giving experience. Oh, that's really inspiring. And now you say you split your time between Washington DC mm -hmm. and France. What is that like living in two different places and juggling that life? Well, we have a daughter, she's five. And so her schedule means that I can't spend as much time in Paris as I would like. Um, and honestly, I think for me personally, and I think my husband also feels this way, we always miss Paris. We, mm -hmm. we are always dreaming of it and always wishing we were there. Um, Washington, D.C. has its strong points as well. They're great museums. 
um, for, you know, where our family is not too far away, but we always are longing for France. And so I try to spend as much time there as possible. And um, we do, my daughter and I do spend the summers there, which is a wonderful, wonderful for us. Oh, yes, that really is wonderful that she gets to enjoy your love for France too and experience another culture like that as well. But also France clearly still very much inspires your writing. I recently read your latest book, The Lost Vintage, which is set in Burgundy, just before I myself went on a trip to Burgundy earlier this month. And I mean, I absolutely loved it. It was really brilliant. But I wondered, was it a visit to Burgundy then that first sort of sparked this idea for a fiction novel for you? Uh, yeah, first of all, I want to say that I was looking at your photos on Instagram of your travels in Burgundy, and it was just spectacular. Your trip made me miss the region so much, the the, the churning colors in the vineyards and the tiny villages and everything looked so picturesque and just magnificent. This time of year there is just the best time, I think, to visit. Oh, yes. I mean, I felt so lucky. I'd never been to Burgundy before. And then I just completely fell in love with it Mm -hmm. on this trip. And yeah, I think it was the perfect time of year. Like you say, the colors were just incredible. So I felt really lucky. But your book was the perfect one to bring with me on the trip as well, because it was all about the area I was staying in, which was amazing. The wine country. So yes, it was a I was writing an article um, for the New York Times that brought me to Burgundy following Thomas Jefferson, who was our third president. He was a diplomat in France, and he took a grand voyage throughout the country in 1787. And he said that the reason for his trip was to inspect French technology, like the Canal du Midi and other projects um, to bring that, that back to the United States. But he also was an incredible wine lover. And so it was no accident that he began this journey in Burgundy. Um, And so I was researching an article about his trip there. Um, I even found some of the same vineyards that he visited and the same wine that he drunk, which was this, you know, really, it felt like time travel. And when I was there, I, I, it was my first trip and I had never been in a place that was so cultivated and so clearly cared for over so long a period. Burgundy, the wine country, the Cote d'Or, has just been nurtured um, for centuries, loving care. And so um, I I fell in love with the region's beauty. Um, But, you know, I, I think I felt something a little bit haunting there too. And that's really what led the, that was the seed. The seed was planted for the for the lost vintage. Oh, amazing! So before we talk about the book a little bit more, and I'm really curious about what you said about the area sort of haunting you. But before we go into that, would you mind just reading an extract from the book? Sure, I would love to. So in this. Uh, in this part of the book, well, I should first of all say that the main character of the book is a sommelier, a wine waiter, who is studying for the most prestigious accreditation in the in the wine world, which is the Master of Wine. Um, there are actually fewer American Masters of Wine than there are American Nobel laureates from the past decade. 
Wow. Um, yes. Yeah. So it's a very difficult test to pass. Um, it requires a blind tasting of 20 wines and essay questions that you have to um, that analyze the wines you're tasting. It's not just about identifying the year or the varietal. It also um, or the vineyard, which are all things they ask you for. It's also, you know, analyzing it from a larger picture about how they all relate to each other the and the business of wine, the industry of wine, as well as the history of wine. So it's a very, very demanding and challenging exam that this, may, my main character, Kate, um, is very, very desperately wants to pass. And so she goes, she's on her third and final attempt. You can only take it three times. And she goes to Burgundy, returns to her family's vineyard to help with the grape harvest, which is called Les Vendanges, and to learn more about Burgundy wine. So in this excerpt, she is in the vineyards among the vines picking grapes. A mist floated over the vines, a fine spray that blurred the distant village and heightened the color of the grape leaves so they flashed against the gray sky. It was the third morning of the Vendange, and my sleeves were soaked with dew, my hands cold and slick, my back throbbing as I bent and stooped. And yet, despite the physical discomfort, the beauty still bewitched me, the air silken and pure, the crisp sounds of snipping secateurs and heels crunching on graveled dirt, the precision of orderly vines marching across gentle slopes. At this hour, before the sun rose bright and strong, the landscape was a wash of color, the Pinot Noir grapes, fat clusters of soft violet, the Chardonnay, pale celadon, the broad leaves, fluttering emerald, the precious soil, a crumbly stroke of russet. Allez, tout le monde, ça va? Nico stood near the cabot, a primitive stone hut. I brought the casse-croûte, he continued in French, holding up a wicker picnic basket. Let's finish this patch and we can eat before loading up, d'accord? A few calls of ascent and we bent to work, the others more experienced, moving swift and steady through the vines while I trailed behind. Finally, I finished my row and lugged my bucket to the wheelbarrow, emptying the fruit within. The other pickers started loading crates of grapes on the truck bed as Nico stood by and noted each one on a clipboard. In the picnic basket, I found the last sandwich, a length of baguette stuffed with a thick slice of pâté de compagne and a slender line of cornichon, sat down on an overturned crate and took a bite. Du vin? A teenage boy appeared before me, proffering a bottle of wine. De l'eau? I asked, hopefully. After morning's toil, I needed water to quench my thirst, not wine. Super, he shrugged. Wine, it would be. I found a plastic cup and he poured me a slug. It was young, still sharply tannic, but full of fruit, the color of rubies. I ate my sandwich in quick bites, washing it down with the wine. In the distance, a mass of clouds bruised the horizon. Nico pushed the last crate of fruit under the truck and walked toward me. Storm's coming, he said, nodding at the sky. As if in agreement, a great rumble rolled across the bucolic calm. I flipped my hood over my head, expecting rain but the sound grew until I realized it was not thunder, but an engine chugging up the slope. After what seemed like a long wait, a tractor finally appeared, grinding to a halt near the truck. The orange door opened, long legs swung down, and the gaunt figure of Uncle Philippe emerged. He surveyed the proceedings, noting the laden crates stacked in the truck, the empty picnic basket, the vendangeur who stood smoking and chatting, 
Nicola, he called to his son, who moved quickly to his side. They spoke in low voices, punctuated by the jab of an index finger, as Uncle Philippe pointed to various parcels of vineyards in the distance. Nico nodded, making notes on the clipboard. The wind gusted, shaking the grape leaves into a hiss, and I looked down at the mesh tops of my running shoes, wondering if they'd survive a thunderstorm. Kate, Nico beckoned, and I rose to join the two men. Bonjour, I greeted my uncle. Bonjour, Catherine, he said with a nod. Listen, Kate, Nico continued in French. Our stagiaire didn't show up this morning, and we need help in the couvrie. Can you go with Papa? His voice was casual, but was I imagining things? Did he give an almost imperceptible shake of the head? Uh, I, I faltered, glancing surreptitiously at Uncle Philippe. He was frowning at the clipboard, exuding such an air of cold formality that I felt clumsy. And yet working in the winery would give me an intimate view of the winemaking process. And wasn't that why I had come here in the first place? Bien sûr, I said, of course. Uncle Philippe and I climbed into the truck. I hunted desperately for some morsel of small talk, anything to break the awkward silence blanketing the vehicle. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been alone with my uncle. In fact, had I ever been alone with him? A blinding flash of lightning illuminated the sky, followed by a deafening crack of thunder. I gasped without thinking, my hand shooting out to grab my uncle's arm. He looked over at me in surprise. Sorry, I croaked, clearing my throat and removing my hand. That just surprised me. We don't have this kind of storm in California. He smiled thinly. You're not scared, are you? No, no, of course not, I stammered, crossing my arms. Through the windshield, I saw the other Vendangeurs scattering for cover. I should hope not. He reached to turn the key in the ignition, but before he could switch on the engine, the rain began to fall. Fat, heavy drops that hit the windshield with a brittle clatter, turning quickly to hail. It was only a summer storm. Still, a shiver ran down the length of my spine. Oh, that was brilliant. Thank Thank you you. so much. I love your book, not only because it's just a really exciting story, you want to sort of find out what happens in it. There's also a romance, which I love. But what makes it a brilliant read to bring with you if you're visiting France and Burgundy in particular, is because there is so much fascinating information you have about wine and the process of making wine and so on in the book. Did you research that specifically or did you already know a lot about wine? I did research it very much um, because although I like to drink wine, I don't know very much about wine. And so I did take classes through the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, the WSET, which also administers the Master of Wine program. They start from very, very basic classes and go all the way up to the higher qualifications. After taking two classes, uh, which were extremely detailed and informative, I realized that I still know very little about wine. (laughs) Um, And I... Uh, enough, I know now enough to know that I really know nothing. (laughs) Um, But I also volunteered for the Vendange for the grape harvest in Champagne. So that was another wonderful experience um, that another travel article I wrote that, um, that led to that inspired the book. Yeah, well, and I love the little bit where Kate would really like a glass of water, but it's just wine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no options. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that's so French, you know. <laughs> 
but I could see how much of your own experience in a way you were you were putting it into the book too but I mean I don't know a lot about wine although I do enjoy you know drinking wine so it was really fascinating for me to get some of those insights into the whole sort of business but another aspect that I really loved about the lost vintage and, and that's why I was so interested when you said that you found Burgundy in some ways a bit of a haunting place to be mm-hmm. because in your book the past really does haunt the present I mean, part of the story follows that of a young woman who was living in Burgundy during World War II when it was occupied by the Nazis And I really loved her story as well as Kate's. What inspired you to research into the sort of history of France in that way? What really inspired that part of the story for you? So like I was saying, when I was in Burgundy in this beautiful place, it it also somehow felt haunted to me. And that also echoed my experience um, picking grapes for the grape harvest, which I did in Champagne. These these places of such magnificent beauty, um, so carefully tended, clearly have not known need for decades or centuries, no economic hardship. And yet there was something ghostly there. When I started to research more about wine in France and the history of wine in France, it began to make a little more sense to me. Um, World War II is something that is not spoken about in France. Um, you just never, it, it, I, I would, it, you just never ask people about it. Um, in a country that was occupied, the chances are that most people suffered very greatly, if not were collaborators themselves. Um, and there, I think there's a lot of shame that lingers from World War II. When I began to learn more about the women's war. Um, that That is really the, the stories of, of how women were treated after the war shocked me because they were so, uh, they, because they remain untold largely. Um, and so when I, when I combined, when I, you know, I knew I wanted to write about Burgundy and, and then the, the haunted feeling led me to the stories of the shorn women, the horizontal collaborators who truly suffered after the war. Yeah, I was really shocked by that too. You know, the way women who were accused of being collaborators, essentially of sleeping with the enemy, Mm -hmm. um, were just treated so appallingly. I mean, like you said, their their hair was shorn off. There was just so much Mm -hmm. shame piled upon them. Although really it seemed like they were an easy scapegoat for that shame. Exactly. Um, They were marched through. It happened in every village and town in France after they were liberated. The punishments began. Um, The women who were accused of collaboration, of sleeping with the enemy, were marched through the streets. They were stripped. They were stoned, beaten. They were shaved. Their heads were shaved. They were smeared with tar, swastikas. Um, And yes, some of them had collaborated. Some of them had slept with German soldiers, but we don't know, we can't know why they chose to make that decision. Some of them were raped. Some of them did it to get food for their starving children. But the worst part is some of them were falsely accused as a way to settle old scores. 
um, and above all, and 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 these these punishments. It was a it was a mob rule. It happened without rule of law, no courts, no judges. It was just the mob turning upon them. And one of the worst parts is that the men who did the same, who did collaborate, went unpunished. Mm-hmm. And many of them became became the punishers of these women in an effort, a desperate effort to clean their own records before the mob turned on them. Well, yeah, it was just so much easier to point the finger somewhere else and detract from themselves. I've, I found that one of the most sort of shocking descriptions in your book because you you go into this more in the book and the main character Kate is horrified to discover some information that seems to point to one of her own French ancestors having collaborated with the Nazis during the war and having been treated in that way um, as a woman And I just thought you dealt with the ramifications of this kind of family shame that there would be for future generations so well. But was it a difficult topic for you to write about? Yes, absolutely. There are times there were there were times while writing it that I couldn't continue. Um, Part of it was because you know, there are there are times when I would come to a block and I couldn't move forward. And partly it was because I hadn't done enough research. And I so I couldn't imagine what I how the story would proceed. But then there are scenes that were just so incredibly painful for me to write. Yeah, well, I mean, it really made me want to learn more about that sort of time in France. I mean, like you say, I think, you know, uh, it's not really spoken about in France, but it's just part of a history of that country that I don't know a lot about. And I was fascinated, for instance, to learn that a lot of the winemakers deliberately fooled the Nazis. They wanted to keep their most prized possessions, which was wine, you know, all their expensive bottles of wine. And they hid them in their cellars, sort of building Mm -hmm. like fake walls and things like that, so that the Nazis couldn't find the wine. I found that really fascinating. Uh, Yeah, that happened throughout France in almost every region, um, uh, in in almost every winemaking region, or even in in Paris, there's a famous restaurant, La Tour d'Argent, where they built a secret cellar and and hid the most precious bottles of wine, uh, but a lot of them, like 8,000 or 10,000 of them. And then also in Champagne, um, the, the Germans loved to celebrate with Champagne when they had a major battle victory. And so they would send cases of Champagne to different parts of, of Europe. And eventually that became a spying tactic that they, they, they realized why they were sending these, these cases of Champagne in advance. And so the winemakers would you know, pass along that information. Well, there's there's so much lore um, of that period, but in general, but then in the wine world, um, there's so much fa- so many fascinating stories. Oh yeah, and I just loved how you brought so many of those out through your book. But do you have a favorite Burgundian wine? <laughs> um, I don't think that I can afford to have a favorite one, <laughs> um, but I do. I do love 
just regular Pinot Noir from Burgundy. I love the the Bur- Burgundy wines that aren't from you know the the Cote d'Or region. The mm-hmm. Beaujolais, I love Beaujolais, um, and some of the like Beaujolais Cru wines have been a really wonderful discovery. Well, like I said, I mean, your book really sets the mood for a visit to France, a visit to Burgundy. There's just so much about food and wine and French history. I really loved it. Thank you so much for reading it and for for all your enthusiasm for it. And I said, like I said, when I saw your photos from Burgundy, I felt like they captured the some of the scenery that was in my that was in my imagination. Yeah, well, I was so pleased because I got to go to Bone and is mm-hmm. it Merceau? What is the Merceau? Ta- yeah, mm-hmm. Merceau, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the towns that are mentioned in your book. So it was really special to get to go and see them for myself, having read about them. Um, but before we end this, Anne, I always ask guests at the end of a Tea and Tattle interview to share something cultural that they've been loving lately, whether it's a book or a magazine or an exhibition, podcast, whatever. But I'd love to hear about something that you've been really enjoying. Well, I love to cook, as you know, and have been really loving a new cookbook. It's called Everyday Dory by Dory Greenspan. She has written a number of cookbooks, um, and many of them are baking books. This is the food she makes every day for herself and her family, and it's just bright, um, inventive, simple ingredients, simple recipes, but um, put together in an unusual way. Like there are bell peppers stuffed with cherry tomatoes and then broiled. So they're sort of, you know, charred a bit. Um, There are different tarts, savory tarts. Um, There's a cake made out of parsnips with a cranberry filling. And I just find the flavors really fresh and, and new. So I recommend that. Oh, that's a brilliant recommendation. Thank you. I love Dory Greenspan too, but I don't have this new cookbook. Mm-hmm. So you've reminded me that it's going on my Christmas <laughs> wish list. <laughs> I can't wait to make more food from it. <laughs> oh, it sounds wonderful. But so what's next for you? Are there any upcoming projects or events or anything that you're able to share at the moment? Um, Well, I'm excited to be speaking in Paris at the American Library in Paris in February, February 19th. I will be um, interviewing and being interviewed by Christian Holthausen of the Champagne House A.R. Lenoble, which is where I volunteer to pick grapes for their champagne harvest. And he'll be offering a champagne tasting as well. So that will be a really fun event. And I also have been experimenting and having a lot of fun with my Instant Pot. It's an electric pressure cooker, or they also call it a multi-cooker. And I just wrote a cookbook for the Instant Pot, which is a French cookbook, um, because so much of that cuisine lends itself to slow braising. Um, But in the pressure cooker, everything takes a very short amount of time. And I also have been working on an article for Thanksgiving, which is our big uh, holiday in November where we eat a turkey and a huge, enormous meal, and cooking that in the Instant Pot, including a turkey. And that has been <laughs> that has been a lot of fun and just a different kind of project to work on. And I've really enjoyed it. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's well- kind of crazy, but but has been, you know, my, a different part of my brain to use. <laughs> 
I can't wait to read that article. <laughs> that will be out in time for Thanksgiving. It then. will, yes. I think in November. Okay. And where where will it be published? In the Washington Post. Amazing. I hope I'll be able to read it. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. And so if people would like to keep up with your news, Anne, where's best for them to find you online? So my website is annemod.net. And uh, you can sign up for my newsletter there, which is the best way to keep up. Um, I send it monthly and it has all sorts of different links to recipes I'm cooking, articles I'm enjoying, articles I've written, um, podcasts like yours, and just a fun way to share, share different bits and pieces. Fantastic. And are you on Instagram as well? I am. And that is also Anne Monette. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, I'm going to go now and sign up to your newsletter because I didn't realize that you had one and I think I'd really enjoy it. So I'm going to do that once we finish this call. But thank you so much, Anne, for coming on Tea and Tattle. It's really been such a pleasure to talk to you and about your wonderful book today. Thank you so much. This has been a real treat for me. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Anne for her brilliant interview. For the show notes, relevant links and more information about entering the Lost Vintage giveaway, check out the corresponding blog post at teentattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 91. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you shared it with a friend who you think would like it too. You can also leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you'd like to receive a handwritten thank you card from me, then simply email me a copy of your review along with your mailing address and I'll pop a card in the post. You can email me at teaandtattlepodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at both Miranda's Notebook and Miranda's Bookcase. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to tune in again this Friday for my regular mini tea reads episode and I'll be back again next Tuesday with a tea and tattle interview until then keep well be joyful and stay in touch